Now you have your Bible tonight to the book of Romans in chapter number 12. Romans chapter number 12, if you're able physically. I, I know very familiar text in the Bible, but would you stand with me? As we go to Romans chapter 12 and verse number 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Father, we one more time ask for your presence and your blessing in this place tonight. Lord, there are needs that have walked through the doors into this auditorium. And, and Lord, a human cannot meet those needs, but the Bible can. And so tonight we desire and pray that the Spirit of God would take the mighty eternal words of God and move them upon our hearts and upon our lives. May holy choices, eternal choices be made tonight. And then for someone who's never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, may this be the day that in repentance and faith they call upon the name of the Savior and they're born again. So Father, we pray for your help now as we come boldly in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much. Please be seated. One of the more powerful Sunday mornings in my life was a few years ago, and I was in the land of Jordan. The best I could tell, there's an independent Baptist church in downtown Amman, and, and yet in Muslim countries where Sunday's a workday, they, like many churches, gather on Sunday night. And so that Sunday morning, I took a rental car and began to do the Jordan Highway thing, and it really is quite an experience, and switched backing up and down through a mountain. I did learn the hard way that on Google Maps, the blue roads are a lot better than the gray ones. I can promise you that. And I made my way back and forth, up, switched backing down through the, up through the canyon, and, and came around the bend, and all of a sudden, right in front of me, there was an incredible bluff. And it overlooks the Dead Sea and just coming around on a gorgeous sunny day, the view in, f in front of me was absolutely profound. It was absolutely amazing. And, and I made my way to that bluff and climbed up the many, many stairs. And, and at the top, it was, well, 2,000 years ago, uh, the summer palace of King Herod. In Jordan, it's a lot different than Israel because in Jordan, they really don't have anybody watching these places. And, and in Jordan, well, I could literally walk right on the tiles where 2,000 years ago, a young lady did her dance. And sitting there that day, realizing the events of long ago, the day that John the Baptist died for his Savior. And as you make your way off the top of that bluff and go maybe a third the way down that steep cliff and mountain, there they have a whole, a little cave, and they believe that's where John the Baptist was incarcerated. So for a Sunday morning, and I mean, you couldn't see anybody. There was nobody within miles. I sat inside that prison cell, which once held John the Baptist, and, and it didn't take a whole lot of imagination to imagine. On a hot summer day, you would boil and bake inside that thing. And yet, being so high up in altitude on a cold night, John the Baptist must have shivered. And some of his disciples come to the mouth of that cave. And, and where I was sitting that day, they asked John, do, what do you want us to do? And, and he said, you go find this Jesus and you ask him if he is the Christ or do we look for another? And, and that certainly is an incredibly powerful text in the Bible, isn't it? And as John the Baptist sat there in the very same place I sat that Sunday morning, 
I couldn't help but just open the scriptures and read the story and, and imagine it must have been like when those soldiers come to arrest John one last time and to take him away in some spot not too far away. John the Baptist was beheaded for his Savior. Soon his head will be placed in a charger and presented to a most wicked of women. And, and as I sat there that day imagining what it must have been like 2,000 years ago when John the Baptist was in the same place with a lot of doubt, with a lot of fear, with a lot of worry. I couldn't help but just shake my head and say, what a price he paid. The man gave his head because he loved Jesus. So what do you call that? When John the Baptist dies and he is beheaded because he will not stop preaching the word of God, when John the Baptist dies because he has the courage to point a finger at a king that is living in sin and say it is not lawful for you to be with that woman. When a man is willing to die for preaching the Bible, what do you call that? Do you call that the supreme sacrifice? Do you call that the amazing sacrifice? What do you say when a man dies because he won't change the message? On September the 5th, 1651, a criminal in Boston, Massachusetts named Obadiah Holmes was taken from a prison cell to receive the punishment that was to be ordered upon him. That day there would be 30 lashes with a three-corded whip. Holmes had been in prison now for a number of weeks and he knew what was facing him on this day and he was struggling to come to terms with the pain and the agony that he would, knew he would soon experience. But that day, as those whips came crashing down upon the back of Obadiah Holmes, that Baptist preacher, an unusual calm came over him. His captors tried to keep him from saying anything, but, but Obadiah Holmes would not be silenced. He cried out and said, I am now come to be baptized in affliction by your hands so that I may have further fellowship with my Lord. And I am not ashamed of his sufferings. And that day as they beat Obadiah Holmes to a pulp, when it was all said and done for days, he had to prop himself up on his hands and his knees. Obadiah Holmes paid an enormous price for Jesus. And do you know the reason? Because the authorities in the commonwealth of Massachusetts, the religious establishment said, you will baptize little babies. Now you will pour water on the head of an infant and call him a Christian. And Obadiah Holmes stood up with courage and backbone and he refused. He refused to baptize an infant and call him a Christian. And for that reason, he was sentenced to an incredibly horrific punishment. So what do you call that tonight? What do you say about a preacher who would say, the message doesn't change? And no matter the cost, no matter the price, if my back is ripped to hamburger meat, it doesn't change a thing. No matter what humans do to me, I will not deny my Savior. What do you say about a John the Baptist who ultimately gives his life, is beheaded because he will not compromise the Word of God? Do you say tonight these men have paid a great sacrifice? The ultimate sacrifice? The supreme sacrifice? What do you call it? 
One day, a Baptist missionary named Adoniram Judson sent a letter to his future father-in-law. I wonder, ladies, how would your dad respond if this is the letter he got from a fellow ambassador asking for your hand in marriage? I wonder, maybe some dad, some Christian dad watching online tonight, if you got a letter like this, what would you do? He wrote to his future father-in-law and said, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure for a heather land and subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Sir, can you consent to all this? For the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you. For the sake of perishing immortal souls. For the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you, sir, consent to all this and hope of soon meeting your daughter in a world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by acclamation of praise which shall redound to her Savior from the heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. You want a husband like that? Uh, That's kind of getting a little serious, isn't it? You know, there are not too many fathers, and if you have the kind of dad whose heart would be broken, but he would say, glory to God, you have a rare father indeed. What would your dad say? Hey, ladies, is that the kind of husband that you're looking for? In 1813, Adam Iram and his new bride were to head to the land of Burma to plant Baptist churches. And you know, his letter turned out to be pretty prophetical because they were permanently separated from family. They knew isolation and loneliness. They faced incredible poverty. There was constant disease listed in his biography were cholera, malaria, whooping cough, and dysentery, among other things. Until ultimately in the land of Burma, that Baptist preacher was imprisoned and tortured. He was finally set free and he made his way home as quickly as he could in 1825. And when he entered the property, there was a Burmese woman squatting beside a pan of coals. And that Burmese woman was holding a pathetic, dirty little child, a baby on her knees. And he didn't even know that he was looking at his own daughter, Maria. He ran into the bedroom and there was his wife, Anne. And she was thrown across the bed as though she had fallen there. He realized at first glance how sick and how poor she really was was and Anne died at the age of 36. Judson remarried and lost his second wife. He buried his children in the land of Burma and yet at the end of his life this is what he said. The motto of every missionary whether preacher, printer or schoolmaster ought to be devoted for life. So what do you say about that? What are you going to call that tonight? I mean, we watched John the Baptist say, I would rather die than back down from preaching. 
We watch Obadiah Holmes say, I refuse to follow the pagan religions and baptize an infant. And if that costs me my life, it costs me my life. We watch Adoniram Judson write a letter like this to a prospective father-in-law. And the father-in-law gave his daughter to that man. What do you call that? Is that the supreme sacrifice? An amazing, what do you call that? In 1962, a gentleman began preaching in Russia by the name of Georgie Vins. His father had been imprisoned and ultimately executed for preaching. And Georgie Vins took up his daddy's mantle and began to preach and establish and build Baptist churches. Soon he was kicked out of building after building and they would preach in apartments and homes and until ultimately they were thrown out of them. And like a very good friend of mine who spent many years in Russia said, when they kicked us out of the building, then we went into the apartments. When they kicked us out of the apartments, we found some places in barns. When they kicked us out of the barns, we discovered that if you went out to the thorns, to the nettles, they wouldn't bother you there. Got a little cold in the middle of winter, but it worked. Then one day in 1966, the authorities came after Georgie Vins. He was arrested and spent three years of hard labor. He was set free, but in 1974, he was arrested a second time. This time he was given a 10-year term in which he described in his book that the suffering was indescribable. He was sentenced to a labor camp in what today in Wiki is called the coldest city on the earth. And it was years before his wife was even allowed a very brief visit. After spending a few moments with her husband, the authorities took Mrs. Vins into a room and says, all you have to do, all you have to do is sign a confession and admit to the guilt of preaching this gospel that you won't do it again and forget your husband, we know he won't. But Mrs. Vins, if you will sign this confession, your husband can go home with you today. She wouldn't sign it. And Georgie Finns went back to working outside without a coat on in the middle of a Siberian winter. So what do you call that? What do you say about a Mrs. Vins, a Pastor Vins? What do you say about Adoniram Judson or Ann Judson or for the record even her daddy? What do you call it when somebody like Obadiah Holmes says, I don't care what the cost is. What do you say about John the Baptist that is willing to give his head for the Savior that he loves? Do you call that a great sacrifice? In 2010, I was preaching in Papua New Guinea, and one Sunday we started a meeting in what was, I believe, the second largest city, at least then, in Papua New Guinea, a city called Ley. And there I was preaching with a pastor by the name of Pastor Jacob Capus. What a testimony. We were sitting after the service one night and I asked him for his testimony. How did he get saved? And, and of course, it was beyond my understanding growing up in the comforts of America. But he grew up in a poor little village out in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. The only hope, the only hope for a child growing up in a place like that is to be one of the rare students that actually graduates from what we would call high school and literally gets a, a, a degree, gets the opportunity, a scholarship to go to the university in the capital city of Port. Moresby, Jacob Capus was a brilliant student. He went on to the university where he graduated with honors and pretty soon Mobile Oil put a contract on the table in front of him. 
And Mobile Oil offered him a great job and he began to work and, and he had a career in front of him from the misery of a jungle village in the middle of Papua New Guinea. Now Jacob Capus had a career, but about that time the Lord saved him. And pretty soon the Lord was working in his heart. And one day Jacob Capus surrendered his life to preach the word of God turned his back on his career, turned his back on the treasures and pleasures that this world could afford. The first thing he did, he got a burden for his own little village out in the western part of Papua New Guinea. He flew in one day, and on a Saturday afternoon, when everybody had come to the market, a little up the road from that market, Jacob Capus set up a PA system, and he began to preach. It wasn't long before the authorities, the religious authorities came. And with the head boss leading the parade, they took their clubs and they destroyed his equipment. And the head reverend from the council, he put a finger in the face of that Baptist preacher and he said, if you come back here and do this again, what we did to the machines, that's what we're going to do to you. The next Saturday, there was Jacob Capus preaching out in front of that market. Pretty soon the authorities came and they kept their word. What they did to the equipment the week before, now they did it to Jacob Capus. They bloodied him and battered him, leaving him laying on the ground. He thought for sure they were going to kill me, but they didn't. But when they beat him to a bloody pulp, the reverend put his finger in the face of Jacob Capus and said, if we ever hear you or see you here again, if you ever open your mouth and preach that Bible, next time we're going to stop, not stop. Next time you'll be a dead man. The next Saturday afternoon, there was Jacob Capus preaching out in front of that market. This time he saw out of the corner of his eye the authorities coming towards him, and he knew what that meant. But at the last minute, suddenly people began to file out of the market. They began to make circles around Jacob Capus. The circles got bigger and bigger and bigger to the place where the authorities couldn't get at him. Jacob Capus stayed there that day and preached the word of God. And as you and I sit here tonight in that little village, there's a Bible-preaching independent Baptist church. And many of the members were the people that made circles around Jacob Capus. So what do you call that? A great sacrifice? The supreme sacrifice? The guy was willing to die so his little village could hear the gospel. In one of the largest cities of Peru tonight, the city of Huancayo, Peru, there's a wonderful Baptist church pastored by a fellow named Christian Soto. When Christian Soto graduated from school, he, like my friend in Papua New Guinea, had a scholarship to the university coming out of a poor family. And, you know, we know what poor family means in America, but it means something very different in Lima, Peru. And when Christian Soto graduated from college at the top of his class, a brilliant guy, sitting on the table in front of him was a contract for the Peruvian government. All he had to do was sign it. And that would mean 1.6 million Peruvian soles a year. Now, that, that could be a lot or a little. So at the time, it was about a half a million U.S., all you got to do is sign the contract. All you got to do is put your name to that. And Christian Soto looked at the contract and he looked at the offer. His friends, his family, his parents, everybody was there. Finally, somebody in our family is a success. And yet when everybody expected him to pick up a pen and sign that contract, he pushed it away and he said, I'm sorry, I can't sign this. 
because as a Christian, I know that God wants me to be a preacher. His family turned on him. His friends turned on him. He paid an enormous price. But he went with a humble missionary and began to learn the word of God. He began to hear the Bible. And today in Huancayo, Peru, there's a marvelous independent Baptist church pastored by a preacher with power and compassion and conviction. And it all goes back to the day when he sang it, so to speak, with his life. I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. So what do you call it? I mean, what title do you put on this? When John the Baptist dies for Christ? When Obadiah Holmes is beaten for Christ? When Adoniram Judson goes to a place like Burma and gives it all up for Christ? What do you call it when somebody like a Jacob Capus is beaten for Christ? Or a Christian Soto says, for my Savior, I'd rather have him than anything this world affords. You call it a great sacrifice, an amazing sacrifice. In Romans chapter 12, verse number 1, the Bible calls it something different. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And, of course, the table is set with that mighty phrase, doesn't it? The apostle Paul now is not twisting anybody's arm. The apostle Paul is not going to sing 75 verses of the invitation now. The Apostle Paul is not going to put him on a guilt trip. The Apostle Paul is not going to play the games that, that so often get played. No, he says, I am here on one reason. I am here standing with one account. I am coming by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, by the, not just mercy, mercies of God. Really, could we go through that list? We certainly don't have enough time, do we? Because though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Because herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Because we love him, because he, for, I mean, how many verses? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. How many different angles? How many different ways to say it? By the multiple mercies of God that he would send his son to die for a sinner like me. That's what Paul's hanging his hat on now in Romans 12. Not because you have to. Not because you're supposed to. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You know, I look at the story of my friend Christian Soto and I shake my head in amazement and watch the Lord use him week after week and glory to God. I sit there with Jacob Capus and I'm stunned and amazed at what I see. I read the accounts like you read the biographies of the Judsons and the Obadiah Holmes and we all read our Bible of the John the Baptist and we just shake our head in what love for Christ, what lives of dedication, what they have done for him. But do you know when heaven looks at the stories of those men and those ladies... Do you know what God calls it? Reasonable service. Reasonable meaning logical, ordinary, run-of-the-mill Christianity. Here's my contention tonight. In America, and for that matter worldwide, but you know when it's religion, it usually starts here. In America... We are so bombarded by a phony, fraudulent, watered-down, 
not in the Bible version of Christianity that if you and I were ever confronted with reasonable Christianity, we would be kicking off our shoes thinking we're on holy ground. No, because week after week after month after month after year and for now it's been a couple decades of ministers on a Sunday morning standing up with the rock and roll band behind them with the lights flashing, standing up there to put on their weekly show because Americans have been convinced they can show up for 30 minutes, they can have their golf shirt on, on well, they just wear the golf shirt now, and they just show up, get their Starbucks, sit in the auditorium, wave their hands, walk out with an I love Jesus and go on their merry way because that has become accepted as normal Christianity. If you and I were ever confronted and we ever saw authentic Bible Christianity, a.k.a. reasonable service, you and I wouldn't know what to do. So for us, what we have witnessed with our lives is a version of Christianity, if it's that, that is not even found in the Bible, that is nowhere to be seen in the Word of God, a religion that says we are going to entertain people, a religion that says we are going to go into the community and ask unsaved people what they want in a church, a religion that is built upon what people want, not what the Bible says, because that has been accepted as the norm. We don't even know what reasonable service is. Tonight, God doesn't need great Christians, really. God doesn't need super Christians. God doesn't need fabulous, fantastic Christians. You know all he's looking for here tonight? Reasonable, logical, normal Christians. Do you know what they do? You know what reasonable Christians do? It's, it's right here in the Bible. So forget what I might think, you might think, what the blogger says, what the podcaster says. Forget what's new and cool and the latest. Forget about all that. What is normal, logical Christianity? If Jesus could die for me, if God could extend multiple mercies on me, if he could rescue me out of the fires of hell, set my feet upon the rock and establish my going, what's the norm? What is the reasonable thing for me to do? What's right here? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, here's first, that ye present your bodies. Excuse me, it doesn't say the Lord's going to come and snatch your bodies. It doesn't say the Lord's going to make this happen. No, no, reasonable Christians, they don't need a big disaster in their life. Reasonable Christian, uh, Christian, Christians, they don't need a catastrophe before they finally do business with God. No, the reasonable, ordinary, decent, logical, I mean, halfway gracious Christian is somebody who says, if Jesus could die for me on the cross, what he's asking me to do is to make a choice and present my body to him. No, I'm not making this up. It's right there. Reasonable service means we present our bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice. So just as in the Old Testament, they take the lamb, slit its throat, shed the blood. Well, God says, I want living sacrifices. I want you to present your body to me a living sacrifice. So what does that mean? Just what it says. A reasonable, decent, ordinary, average, run-of-the-mill, normal Christian 
is somebody who says, Lord, here's my hands. From here on out, you get to take my hands and I'll do whatever you want me to do. A reasonable, run-of-the-mill, ordinary, average, decent Christian who's not a freeloader says, Lord, here's my big old feet. And if you can do something with these big old feet, well, these big old feet will go right where you want them to go. Oh, Lord Jesus, if you could die for me on the cross and you want me to present my body to you, I guess that means you want my ears. So I am presenting my ears to you to listen to the things that you want me to listen to. I present you my eyes that I might see the things that you want me to see, to read the things that you want me to read, to watch websites that you want me to see, to watch programs and entertainment that you want me to watch. This is what reasonable Christians do. I give you my hands. I give you my feet. I give you my eyes. I give you my ears. I give you my heart. I give you my everything. I give you my mind. I give you my all. A reasonable, ordinary, decent, average, run-of-the-mill Christian, not a super now, not a superstar, Just some ordinary, decent Christian looks at the cross and says, if that's what Jesus could do for me, then he gets my hands, my feet, my eyes, my ear, my nose. He gets my mind. He gets my stomach. He gets my liver. He gets my breathing lungs. He gets it all. Normal, decent Christians present their bodies to the Lord. And they do it while it is still holy and acceptable. See, This is why it's so important for right here. You know what the attitude is? There's this song, okay? And it's a beautiful song. And it's an emotional song. And it's a moving song. And for somebody here, it's like your all-time number one favorite song. And if this is your all-time favorite song, that's okay. I didn't get up in the morning thinking, eh, how can I hammer their all-time favorite song? So if this one's your all-time number one top dog song, eh, get a new one. (laughs) You know, it's really emotional. It's really moving. People need the Lord. At the end of their broken dreams, he's the open door. Please don't misunderstand. The most broken sinner in Shelby, North Carolina tonight can be rescued by the grace of God. I've heard some testimonies of some of you. When your life was a mess and your life was broken and your life was ruined, Jesus not only saves, he saves to the uttermost. And yes, the Lord can take a broken life and the Lord can take a drug addict and the Lord can take somebody whose life has been ruined by booze and the Lord can take somebody whose body has been racked by immorality and the Lord can take the worst of sinners. He can save them. He can change them. He can claim them up. He can can set their feet on a rock and he can give them a tomorrow. God is an expert at that. But here's the problem. For the most part, and I've heard some testimonies that are amazing here, but yeah, sitting down here in the first 15 rows, right? I'm looking at people, your lives have not been ruined by booze. Most of you have never one time taken anything stronger than Advil. I'm looking at people, you have never gone to some deep, dark house of sin. I am looking at people here that you, for the most part, can sit here tonight and say, you know, these eyes have never seen the filth. These ears have never gone to that place. These feet have never been to these wicked houses of sin. No, I'm looking at people here today, and you have a body that is still holy and acceptable. It is something pleasing to God. 
And don't misunderstand because the worst sinner in the middle of Charlotte can get saved and the Lord can change his life. But in this room tonight are sitting people that can still give God a sacrifice that is acceptable unto him. And God says, I'm not waiting for you to go and ruin your life and destroy your testimony and make a mess out of your life. And after Humpty Dumpty falls off the wall and all the king's horses and all the king's witch doctor, a psychiatrist, can't put him back together again, then you're going to come and you're going to get out here and say, Jesus, I'm sorry, fix my problems. And he better fix them by lunchtime tomorrow. Nope. Nope. Not going to work. At Ambassador Baptist College sitting here tonight, our men and ladies, you still have a holy body to present to him. You still have a sacrifice that has not been ripped to shred by sin. You have something that is pleasing unto him. And if you think that you can sit back and say, well, I'll tell you, it's my life. And I'm going to live the next 10 years, 20 years, when I'm 40, when I'm 50, when I'm 35. You know, one day when I get married and have kids, one day I'll get serious with God. God is not interested in that deal. Reasonable Christianity says tonight, before the wicked music has ruined my ears, before the wicked videos have ruined my eyes, before the filth of the world's destroyed my mind, before my lungs have been ruined by tobacco and drugs, before my life has been broken by sin, I'm going to present my body to the Lord as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And that's not what great Christians do. That's not what fabulous Christians do. That's not what one in a million do. That is what ordinary, decent, average, run-of-the-mill, reasonable Christians do. So if a reasonable Christian says, I present my eyes, my ears, my tongue, my mind, my heart, I present my body to Jesus before it is ruined by sin, that means that somebody who sits here tonight and says, Jesus saved me and I've got my fire insurance policy and I'm not going to hell. Now I'm going to do what I want. That means that person is incredibly unreasonable. No, no, no. We're not looking for some one in a million. All the Lord needs is reasonable, decent, average, ordinary Christians who take a quick look at Calvary and say, if he could do that for me, he wants me to present my body a living sacrifice, that sounds reasonable. And when somebody wants to watch what they want, listen to what they want, go where they want, do what they want, it's incredibly unreasonable. And then some of these people have the audacity to say, I do what I want, go where I want, live like I want, and it's all because of grace. You know, if, if you're going to live a selfish, stubborn, unbiblical, ruined life, don't try to mask it by the grace of God. What are you doing? What are you asking for? You know, last I checked, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. And what it does is teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Your version of grace says I can live, walk, talk, sing, behave, dress, joke like the world? How come you're so unreasonable? No, how come you are so unreasonable? 
reasonable Christians present their body to the Lord. But then there's this second thing, isn't there? In verse number two, the Bible says, and be not. This is what scholars like Dr. Spencer call a commandment in the Bible. It is not a suggestion. This is not a, it would be nice if you would. This is not the Lord saying, you know, I got something I want to share with you. No, this is the Lord saying, if Jesus can die on a cross for you, there's nothing to discuss. Be not conformed to this world. The word conformed, what a word. It was used at a potter and the clay. I remember years ago, we were preaching a meeting in Santiago, Chile, and and one day, the missionary had a free day. We went high up into the Andes Mountains. And, and if you've never seen or been to the Andes Mountains, you know, the Andes Mountains are kind of like King's Mountain. Well, give or take a little bit. Maybe a couple of feet higher. And we went to this village way out in the middle of the Andes Mountains. And, you know, you've seen this in different places. Williamsburg. Some of you from New England heard of Sturbridge Village. Places like this, you know. And, and they got this old guy with the potter's wheel. You know, over there, the guy's working with the horseshoes. You know how it goes. And... And there was this old, old Chilean guy. And he had this pottery shop. And, and, and he, you know, you've seen it, right? He takes the lump of clay and he throws it on the wheel. He spins the wheel, puts the water on top. And this guy, his thumbs, you know, they must have been that long. You know, huge, long, thin thumbs. And boy, did that ever work with his job. And, and it just mesmerized. And we're standing there watching this guy throw the clump, turn the wheel, and he sticks his thumbs. And the next thing you know, those long, thin thumbs, they begin to mold a cup. They begin to mold a vase. It's just fascinating, of course. And, and when that guy was sticking his thumbs into the clay, he was molding, or the Bible word would be conforming the clay. So what does it say? And be not conformed to this world. Now, if that's what they're saying back there in Romans chapter 12, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say the world hasn't gotten any better. And, you know, for people who think, you know, like those whose religion it is to reform Roman Catholicism, Oh, yeah, it's going to get better and better and better and better, and we're going to be so good, we're going to bring in the kingdom. Yeah, right. It's people like that, you know, they need to buy a newspaper once in a while. This isn't going to, this isn't going to all of a sudden turn sweet and wonderful. It's just going to turn worse and worse. That's what the Bible says. And so we have a world that, that has gotten worse and worse, just like God promised. And what does that verse says? It says, and be not. You don't let the world stick their thumbs into your life and conform you to be like them. That's exactly what it says. And the reason you do this or you refuse to do this is because you want to be a reasonable, decent, ordinary, average, run-of-the-mill, good old boy Christian. And that's what normal Christians do. They look at Jesus dying on that cross for me, paid the price for me, and if Jesus could give his all so that I could be saved, and all he's asking me to do now, after I present my body to him, he says, just please don't let the world stick its thumbs into your life and make you like them. Don't let the world stick your thumb one day in your family and make it like them. Don't let the world stick a thumb in a, a New Testament church and make that church look like the world. Brother Beale has a tremendous responsibility with the faculty here that they constantly make certain 
that the world doesn't stick its thumbs into Ambassador Baptist, Baptist College and mold it like them. So the world doesn't get to tell us how to preach. The world's not going to tell us how to talk. The world's not going to tell us what's funny. The world doesn't set the standard of dress. The world doesn't tell us how to behave. It doesn't tell us where to go. It doesn't tell us what, the, the world's not going to do it. The Bible says, be not. Don't let the world stick its thumbs in your life, in your home, in your college. Don't let the world stick its thumbs into your church. You don't let the world stick its thumb into a Christian and conform you to be like them. I mean, if I didn't know better, I'd think there could be a verse in the Bible that says something like, oh, I don't know. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And, you know, who knows? There could even be one, I'm not saying this, but there could even be a verse that says something like, oh, I don't know. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And what would we do? Now, I'm not saying, sir, but what would we do if there was a verse in the Bible that said something like this? I mean, just imagine, just, just imagine for a second. Whoa, it's a good thing. What if Jesus said something like, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. I mean, something like that was found in the Bible. And if the Lord said, don't let the world, I guess, I guess on a Sunday morning then, we shouldn't go to a massive house of religion where they went to the bars and the taverns in Hollywood to get their music from. I guess that means, you know, on Sunday morning, instead of some guy up there trying to make things as much as like the world to look at, walk at, talk at like that, I guess that means that on a Sunday morning, because of the mercies of God, we're supposed to be different. We're not supposed to try to track the world. We're supposed to try to please our Lord. Our business is not to soften the gospel and soften the Bible to the place where finally this pagan world says, yeah, I like the way you sing. I like the way you dance. I like the way you play. I think that church is for me. The Bible says, be not conformed. That is not what great Christians do. That is not what the one in a million Christians do. <laughs> That's what the reasonable, decent, average, run-of-the-mill, good old boy Christians do. Normal Christianity, reasonable service, says, I present my body to the Lord. And then number two, it says, I take the thumbs of the world and I pull them right out of my life. So if the reasonable Christian says, I don't want to be conformed to this world, that means that somebody who says, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven and I want the world. Such a person is incredibly unreasonable. No, no, we just need to walk in grace. That's what we need. We need to walk in grace. And when we walk in grace, we're going to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and live soberly, righteously, and godly. We need more grace. No, 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 that's what it says. We need to walk in grace so that we won't drink like the world does. You know, 11 times in Titus, he deals with booze. 11 times, three chapters. I mean, in the Bible, if we're going to live in grace, that means that we're going to pull the thumbs of the world right out of our lives. You say, you know, all these rules here, and you got these standards here, and you got to dress a certain way here, you know, the music. I mean, it's not right. You know, you know what would happen, Brother Bill, if we started rocking and rolling? 
nobody would be here. Because number one, the people who don't want it wouldn't come. And number two, the people who you think would like it, they're going to go find it somewhere else because Brother Beal doesn't know how to do that. <laughs> and the reason he's here is because he doesn't. It's going to work. Reasonable, decent, average, run-of-the-mill Christianity. That's all we need. And I'm asking for something super separated. And he said, that kind of sounds like legalism, doesn't it? No, it kind of sounds like Bible. It kind of sounds like Romans 12, 1 and 2 and 1 John 2, 15 through 7. That's what it kind of sounds like. Reasonable Christians say, I give my body to the Lord before I've messed it up. Reasonable Christians say, I'm pulling the thumbs of the world out of my life. And, and then, of course, the third thing, reasonable Christians be transformed by the renewing of your mind because they want to give their life to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Reasonable Christians give their lives for the will of God. See, that's why Adoniram Judson in that little letter, you know what that is? Reasonable. That was the will of God. Georgie Vins, being pummeled and then spending 10 plus years up in the frigid tundra of Siberia in the coldest city on the earth. You know what that is? Reasonable service. My buddy down in Papua New Guinea, my buddy down in Peru, reasonable service. If Jesus could leave heaven and though he was rich, yet he became poor, these guys haven't given up anything. Reasonable service. There's a song, and I am, I'm just so glad, you know, that this song's kind of gone away, and, 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 you know, it's just, I'm just glad it has, because, I mean, this one really grinds me. In, in the old days, you kind of used to hear this at missions conferences, and it even find its way into a good independent Baptist church, and if this is your favorite song, I love you anyhow, and I didn't get up this morning thinking, you know, how can I hammer their faith? So if this is your all-time favorite, get a new all-time favorite. And it's so emotional and so moving. And, you know, the missions conference, people start singing, thank you for giving to the Lord. You remember that one? Boy, did I hate that song. Yeah, I was in the missions conference, and that missionary showed the slides of those little boys and girls. And I reached into my pocket and I gave my last 33 cents to Jesus. And now when I get to heaven, they're going to be walking up to me singing, thank you for giving to the Lord. Really? Really? You know, I got this idea that when we get to heaven, it isn't going to be, thank me for giving to the Lord. We probably might start out with a chorus or two of great things he hath done. So loved he the world he gave us his son. And it's going to be a long, long time, really never, before they get around singing praises to you and me. And this is what happened. This is why you know, we look at this colossal mess that religion is, and even some Baptist churches it, it is tonight. And the reason is because you go back far enough, and all of a sudden people are convinced. You give your spare change to Jesus, you're a great Christian. I, I mean, all you got to do is show up once a week, and you're a great Christian. And, and I mean, oh, you're good, you're good, everything's fine, everything's wonderful. And so pretty soon, pastors, you know, there's nobody coming on Sunday nights. So like Brother Bill's preaching the other day, just cancel the service, nobody's there. And I, I don't get it. 
said, what are they canceling the service for? Well, worse, how come people don't want to come to church on Sunday night? I'm just wondering, how come they don't want to? And it just turns into a first-class disaster because people are convinced that, that this little phony brand of Christianity that has been invented is somehow Bible. Well, the God of the Bible says that reasonable Christians present their bodies to the Lord. They pull the thumbs of the world out of their life and they give their lives for the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. There's not six wills of God, eight wills of God. I mean, whatever, whatever's been taught, whatever's been said, I can only find one in the Bible, the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. And you know, there are a lot of people you'll see come give their testimonies here that gave their life to the will of God. And Brother Beal can tell you, like he said this morning, a lot of stories about people who wish they did. But I'll guarantee you this. You know, we heard about a funeral today. In the history of the world, no one has ever come to the end of their life who lived for the will of God who said, I wish I could go do it again. But every pastor, including yours, can tell you of story after story. They visited people on their deathbed saying, if I could only go back to when I was in high school. If I could only go back to my college years. If I could only go back to that day when I was at camp and God was dealing in my life. You know, I'm not a golfer. I'm not a good enough Christian. And preachers cheat. Why do they cheat? So I'm not a golfer. But I understand on the golf course they have this little thing called a mulligan. You may get a mulligan on the golf course, but you don't get a mulligan in life. One life that'll soon be passed. No one's ever lived for the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God who regretted that choice. Reasonable service. Not great Christianity. Not superb Christianity. Just reasonable service. And so what if one day there was a student from Ambassador Baptist College who goes from this place and and the Lord leads and directs them. And maybe a guy and a girl get married. And, and then they head off to some inner city, you know, like an Atlanta or a Baltimore or a Detroit. And they start a church. Would that be a great thing? Well, what if there's something else? Another couple from here. And one day you find yourself at Hartsfield Airport in Atlanta flying up into the air and, and you're heading off to some distant place. You know, who knows, right? You're heading off to the Philippines. You're heading off to Argentina. I mean, you're heading off to some place maybe like Siberia to preach the Bible and start a church. And as you watch somebody like that get on that plane and maybe take two little babies with them and fly into the air, is, what do you say about that? And what if somebody in this place one day is the one that winds up in jail for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? What do you call that? Do we say it's great? Do we have some awesome title for this? You know, when heaven sees somebody give their life to go start a church or heaven sees somebody get on a plane and fly to a distant mission field to build a church or... Heaven watches somebody pay an enormous price for the Lord. Do you know what heaven says? That's reasonable. That's reasonable. Reasonable service. If Ambassador Baptist College would be able to be used of God to help produce reasonable Christians, this world wouldn't be the same. 
reasonable Christians, they give their life for the will of God. So somebody tonight says, it's my life. Somebody here tonight. My dad, he made me come here for one year. And on May, whatever that day is, I'm out of here. The deal is done and I'm going to go and do what I want, where I want, and the rest of the life is mine. If somebody says, I'm living for me, that would be unreasonable. The Lord Jesus went to a cross to die for your sins and mine. You say, that just sounds pretty severe. It sounds pretty hard. But don't you understand? It's by the mercies of God. And if you're here tonight and you have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, how can you be confronted with the mercies of God and the price that God paid when he so loved you, he gave his only begotten son? How can we look at the cross and watch our Savior, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, and with those nails through his flesh and with the crown of thorns on his brow, there he hangs upon that cross and he's dying for you and he's dying for me. How can somebody look at Calvary and just go on their merry way and say it's nothing to me? How can it be? How can it be that Jesus dies for you and then you just say, that doesn't affect me and I don't care? You know, I'm always stunned and amazed when you talk to somebody and and with an attitude, some guy will say, yeah, the Lord's got to prove himself to me. Really? You know, somebody who says that is so disingenuous. They're, They're not right. Because God did prove himself towards you. God proved his love towards you and he gave his only begotten son to die on a cross so you could be rescued from hell. And now some human in their area, God's going to have to show me something. Well, he already did. Excuse me, the ball is in your court. What are you going to do with Jesus? And the world will look at a Jesus on the cross and pass right on by. They don't seem to care. They don't seem to be affected. But when someone comes to the Bible and they realize Christ died for my sins, according to the scriptures, he was buried and he rose again. When they come to the Bible and see the incredibly enormous price that was paid so that a sinner like me could be pulled out of the fires of hell and receive a home in heaven. How can they do anything else except bow their knee and say, I am a sinner who needs the Savior Jesus, save me, wash my sins away, or you're saved tonight. I suppose if we started a list, we could come up with 10,000 good reasons why you ought to be saved tonight. But the greatest one is by the mercies of God. He died for you. What are you going to do? He left heaven for you. How are you going to respond? Are you going to pass through this week? Are you going to pass through these first two weeks an ambassador without Christ? Are you just going to keep playing the religious game? Maybe somebody here, maybe somebody online tonight, you're not saved. How much longer do you tempt God? How much longer do you gamble with your soul? When is it going to be that you finally bow your knee in repentance and faith and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? If not tonight, you think you can cut a special deal with God? Reasonable service. By the mercies of God, we offer you that great Bible invitation, come and be saved. By the mercies of God tonight, well, this morning we heard a mighty, mighty message of just going further. And tonight further is reasonable. Father in heaven, I pray that tonight the Bible would do its work in the hearts and lives of your men and your ladies in this building. And first I pray if someone's not saved that tonight they would tempt the Lord no more, that tonight they would run to the mercies of God. They would be saved from hell and saved from sin. May that happen tonight. 
And then, Lord, I'm praying for your children, and I'm praying that the word of God would break our hearts, that would rip us out of our lethargy and selfishness and lukewarmness. Or would you please remind us what reasonable, decent Christians are supposed to do?